Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Ultimate Podcast. We've got something different for you today, um, but we're really looking forward to it. With me as always, my co-host, Mitch Kurtz. How you Hello. doing? Mitch? Very well, thank you. Looking sharp, um, and but not quite as good as our lovely guest, Chaska Somerville, renowned author, I think we can now say Chaska, but um, Chaska is uh, an, an Ayurvedic medicine practitioner, um, and she's going to join us today to um, to talk all things Ayurvedic medicine and wherever else we go in our usual alt-med discussion. So welcome, Chaska. All right. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to get into this with you today. Excellent. No, we are we are pumped. This is a, a new frontier for, for the podcast. We, um, you know, for a lot of our listeners, they're probably sick of us going on about medical cannabis actually no they're not they love it that's why they keep coming back for more but no um this is uh, something a little bit different today so perhaps um as is usually the way we do these things can you give us a bit of your background and how you fell into the world of, of alternative medicine and, and sort of what piqued your interest in in ayurvedic medicine so I first discovered Ayurveda um, when I was traveling through India on a bit of a yoga expedition many years ago. Um, I was working as a full-time filmmaker at the time and was totally burnt out by technology and cameras and editing and just was looking for a little bit more balance in my life. And yeah, I was um, on that sort of journey and on that path and discovered Ayurveda through the therapies that they were offering in India and then sort of dabbled with some cooking classes. And once I really kind of developed an understanding of what it really was and how deep it goes and how much it can support you and your yoga practice and your lifestyle and really give you the tools you need to be able to come back to yourself and to understand your place within your environment and, and why that's important. Um, I just came back to Australia and sort of dove straight in and studied my diploma at the Byron Ayurveda Centre and really just sort of did it for myself. I was pretty keen to get my hands into the earth and to spend some time away from computer screens and one thing led to another and the more I sort of began to develop a relationship with it and before and began to see the positive effects it was having on my life. Um, naturally, I just couldn't stop talking about it and living it and breathing it and sharing it. And it, it kind of inspired me to take the practice quite seriously and start offering um, consultations and, you know, helping people get through certain challenges in their life with all sorts of different ailments and, yeah, I just sort of, it, it naturally just progressed into a business for me. And it's, yeah, it's been an amazing journey. That's awesome. That's, uh, I, I um, must admit, so Mitch and I were in India a couple of years ago and we didn't, at least if you can correct my understanding, which I don't think we intersected at all with Ayurvedic medicine. And I suppose, um, yeah, it might help our, our audience and, and, and us too, if you could just take us through, so, you know, what is Ayurvedic medicine about? What are the sort of the fundamental principles of it? So firstly, it's not really just about medicine. So Ayurveda is, is very fast and very holistic and it's more of a lifestyle than it is just a medicine. So Ayurveda is known as the world's oldest system of health care. So it's very holistic in that it values the paradigm between the mind and the body. So 
you know, if you're experiencing stress and anxiety and you're living a very fast-paced life and you have, you know, lots of pressure on you to achieve, um, then Ayurveda recognises that that mental disposition is going to have an effect on your physical well-being. So disease sort of breeds from mental instability and mental illness or even just simple things like stress and pressure. So Ayurveda is all about prevention over cure. So it's sort of, it's the lifestyle that sets you up so that you don't fall under the wrath of, you know, diseases and long-term chronic illnesses. So it's, you know, a plant-based diet. It's all about cooking fresh, healthy meals, having your mindfulness and meditation practices, coming back to your body, having your daily rituals and your self-care practices, eliminating as many toxins as possible, having a strong connection to nature, and really just being able to navigate your way through life so that you can always, no matter what situation, because we're always going to be faced with stress. So it's about how you can balance that out and how you can sort of develop a shield so that you're not overburdened by those pressures. And then Ayurvedic medicine is sort of one element of that. So Ayurveda has this beautiful saying that when diet is right, medicine is of no need. And when diet is wrong, medicine is of no use. So it's sort of, it's, it's, it goes hand in hand with that philosophy of um, creating this lifestyle for yourself so that you don't need medicine. But if you do, then there's, you know, a plethora of plant remedies and lots of diet and lifestyle practices that you can have for yourself um, to bring you back into balance. Yeah, right. And how, how did Ayurveda actually come to be? Like, what's the, the genesis of Ayurveda? So if you look at Ayurveda, it's, it's all about, it comes down to the five great elements. So that's either air, fire, water, and earth. So it says everything, including ourselves and the planet and all species are comprised of those five elements. So really it's an eternal science in that there was never a time where Ayurveda didn't exist, but the knowledge of Ayurveda was really absorbed and brought to life many, many, many thousands of years ago. So Ayurveda is, it classifies the history of, of mankind so far and the earth into periods called the yugas. And right now we're in the fourth yuga. And the first yuga was the golden yuga where there was no such thing as disease. Human beings and all species really lived in perfect synergy with their natural environment, with the seasons, with nature. They ate purely organic food, really clean water, fresh air. You know, everything was as it was intended to be. And over time, as, as human beings developed, you know, desires and passions and sort of moved away from nature, disease began to manifest. And that was called the Silver Yuga. And at that time, there's a story that says there were a thousand rishis that got together in India and they did a collective meditation because the consciousness was, was raised in that collective meditation. And at that time, they were seeking knowledge and guidance onto, as to how to um, resolve the disease and they basically absorbed the knowledge of Ayurveda in this collective meditation and that knowledge was then passed on for many thousands of years through song and through poetry and through rhyme because at that time they didn't have you know pens and papers and computers and things like that to pass on the messages so it was all done through through those beautiful kind of really romantic forms of expression and that's what kept it alive 
um, up until about 3000 BC, which was when it was first documented. And, you know, it's the World Health Organization classifies it as 5000 years old. But yeah, as I said, it's really, it's eternal. There was never a time that all of these fundamentals didn't exist, but it, it has been utilized now to be aware of our place within, within the environment and to be aware of how we can use nature to support us. Yeah, very interesting, actually. I'm just thinking about when you said that um, medicine is only really a, a small component. So in terms of Ayurveda, I guess what we'd normally talk about in terms of medicine would be how it's administered. But in, in the case of Ayurveda, how, how is it administered beyond medicine? You know, is it obviously diet is, is a big part. I believe massage is another part. I'm curious to know what all the factors in terms of uh, an Ayurvedic lifestyle would look like. Is, is exercise in there as well? I'm just... just... Definitely. I mean, yoga is... One yoga is known as the sister science of Ayurveda, but exercise um, is really important. Basically, to sort of begin the journey with Ayurveda, um, and what I do with my clients is have a very comprehensive look at their entire lifestyle. So, from their medical history, their family history, their emotional well-being. So, what's going on in their life, their relationships, their work, their home life. You know, people could be living in a share house and having lots of interpersonal dynamics that are really plaguing them um, then obviously diet is huge and not only just diet it's not about you know what we're eating it's about when we're eating it where our consciousness is when we're eating it if we're just eating in front of a computer screen and we're not actually mindfully eating or aware that we're consuming food we can't digest it probably because our body isn't actually having the full experience of it so the time of day is also important Important. Um, the agni, which is the digestive fire, works in alignment with the sun. So the biggest meal of the day should be consumed at, at midday when the sun is the strongest and then tapering off at night and, you know, gentle in the morning as well. So all of these factors and, you know, your form of exercises. And there's also, it's not a blanket approach. So these elements are really pertaining to the individual and to their imbalances and what's known as the doshas and working within those. So if you've got someone who's a pitta type, who's got a lot of fire in their body, they're probably the ones that are more drawn to going for a run and boxing and doing really active, intense exercises. But if they're already dominated by the fire element, that actually fuels the fire element a lot more. So what a pitta type should do would actually be more to slow down and come back into their body and cool the fire. So any sort of water sports, swimming, um, more gentle practices are going to create more balance in that person. So it's really, you know, it's it's down to the individual and not only their constitution, but what imbalances they're experiencing day to day. Well, I love the idea of it um, just being so preventative. And I imagine that, you know, in circumstances where somebody who I guess adheres to Ayurveda um, quite closely becomes ill with, with anything, they are probably in a very good position um, with their immune system to, to respond to that. But in that type of scenario, what types of um, plant medicines uh, form part of um, Ayurveda? So with Ayurveda, if you have a really ill person, the last thing you want to do is overburden their system with lots of different, you know, really intense medicines, really intense cleansings. There's, you know, panchakarma, which is 
incredibly intense on the system. And it's only really recommended for people who are strong in their constitution. So if you have someone who's very weak, you will start them with a very weak protocol. And it's it's a long-term goal. It's not a quick fix. You know, in modern medicine, we do it. We want everything straight away. It's the, it's the magic pill, the quick fix. And it's actually, if they're not strong enough to handle those things, they need to slowly develop that strength and immunity and building up all of those immune responses over time. So it's a more gentle approach. Um, you can use some more intense cleansing for someone who's healthy and you're just trying to maintain that healthiness. Um, and there's, you know, there's thousands of beautiful plants and different kind of elixirs, tinctures, um, there's jams, there's formulated, fermented, they're almost like, it's almost like a kind of potent wine tincture, which has been fermented um there's different mineral ashes there's so many so many incredible medicines and some of the processes to create those medicines can take you know three days of being burnt over a fire to to create this ash residue um yeah it's it's incredibly vast and it comes down to what you need but there's always going to be a diet as well that's complementary to that and that's going to support you to absorb and assimilate and to build build up your strength before you can start working with some of the more potent um, treatments and therapies. And as you were saying before, Mitch, you know, there's um, massage and there's lots of different therapies as well that involve oil and things like that, which really support the physical body. So that's massage. You know, I think we think of it as this kind of, you know, luxurious self-care pampering moment, but what it's actually doing is, it's supporting the lymphatic system so that all of those toxins can be circulated, broken down and removed by the body naturally. So it goes a lot more um, deep than just that sort of relaxation time. And it's obviously great for the mind. And once the mind is happy and content, then the body has a chance of actually defending itself as it is naturally desert, like inclined to do. Yeah, very interesting. I'm just thinking about what you were saying um, regarding Western medicine, looking for that kind of quick quick fix. Um, what, what do you think it is about Western medicine or people who subscribe mostly to Western medicine that what do you think they're missing from the maybe more Eastern medicine, if you like, or, or, or you know, practices like Ayurveda? I think the fundamental problem that we have in Western medicine is that we're not looking for the root cause. We're going to the doctor and we're saying, hey, I've got all these symptoms, you know, I've got headaches, I've got inflammation, whatever. And they're saying, oh, here's, here's a tablet for that. And they're not actually asking, well, where did that come from? You know, what's happening at work? What's happening in your relationship? Like, why are you having these problems? They're going, here's this tablet. And this tablet usually has side effects. And, yeah, you might kind of silence the symptoms of what you're going through at the moment. But then the roll-on effect of that tablet in your body then needs to be cleansed. It might have, it might be, it might be stored in the body, which creates what's known as amma or toxins, which can then perpetuate the cycle of needing and relying on all of these synthetic, you know, drugs. So the fundamental difference is that Ayurveda's, you know, symptoms are great because they're clues for what's going on, but we're always looking for the root cause. And we're always looking to eliminate that instead of just waiting for it to just keep coming up and coming up again. Is there, it's an interesting, um, I, I guess, yeah, it's totally different approach, this holistic um, way that, that Ayurveda is. I, I'm interested in whether or not there's 
scope for Western medicine and Ayurveda to work together in the sense of, do you find that say with advanced imaging um, that might be available in Western medicine, that some of what has been, you know, written about in Ayurveda for, for centuries or millennia that we can actually start to use those, you know, contemporary tools to, to better understand perhaps what people were writing about, you know, so many years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, as, as people in this modern age, we need and we depend on science to, to prove us right. And I don't personally ascribe so heavily to needing the facts. If I've experienced something for myself and it's natural and there's very low risk and there's no side effects, you know, I'm happy to try it and see if it works. But a lot of people need that documentation and they need those peer-reviewed studies and they need to see the facts. And more and more, you know, science is uncovering the amazing benefits of all of the practices of Ayurveda. Like we see every day articles, there's over 20,000 articles on um, the benefits of meditation and how that affects the nervous system and, you know, gut health. That's become such a buzzword now and that we have the second mind in the gut and we have, you know, those gut feelings. And, you know, these are these are philosophies that Ayurveda has been talking about for many thousands of, of years and, Hippocrates himself, I think 500 BC said that let food be thy medicine, you know, and he was, he was one of the forefathers of, of modern medicine. So, you know, these, these are not new topics and they're not new theories. They've been there for so long and it's been proven day and day after day that it, it all makes sense and that it is, is all beneficial for the body and that there are no risks to it. So it's wonderful to see that science coming up. I, yeah, I tend to agree. I also find it interesting how you're right. There are some people who will, you know, I will not take this unless it's been put through rigorous randomized control, um, you know, phase three clinical trials. I, I say, you know, for, for, for lower risk activities, um, you know, it, there's no harm in like, for example, um, I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting, I know that's um, not uh, not everyone's cup of tea, um, literally, but yeah, it's it's just proven to be um, you know really really good for me. Um, I just feel great throughout the day. Is, is that something? Is fasting part of? Um, Absolutely, intermittent fasting is one of the Ayurvedic um, philosophies, but it should be used by certain men benefit a lot more from intermittent fasting than women, okay. um, especially during the mid life so like 20 25 to sort of 55 60 depending on your constitution is the time you want to do it before that no obviously children are growing so they need lots of um lots of you know nutrients and taking longer periods is not good and the same when you're older um but yeah it's definitely an aspect of it and i mean it basically has a rule that you know you shouldn't really eat any anything in you know, should have four hour gaps in between each meal. So this kind of idea of constantly snacking and grazing because your digestive system, when your digestive system is on and it's working and you start to eat something, it actually switches off. So it's going from one process to another. So mm. you really need to let your entire meal be digest fully before you should start consuming anything else, even yeah. to the point where 
when you're cooking, you know, you shouldn't really be taste testing the whole way through. You should be using your scent and your eyes to see, to observe the colours of the food, to smell the aromas of the food. To That's actually the first st- stage of digestion. When you have that experience and that connection, mm. you're satiating your palate and you're begin- beginning to pre- prepare yourself for digestion. And then when you eat, you should eat, you know, within like 15 minutes, just have the whole meal not too fast, not too slow, but within 15 minutes, you don't want to have a plate of food there that you're kind of like coming back to all the time. It's like you eat and then you allow your digestive system to do what it needs to do. Is there something that you would do straight after a meal? Like would you, would you actually take the time to, you know, just sit, maybe read something? I always just find, especially since I've started fasting, I, I just, I get quite sleepy after food consumption, um, particularly if I've had too much, but yeah, I'm sort of at the moment one meal a day, Monday to Friday, just at, at dinner time. So maybe I should switch that to um, middle of the day based on what you said. Yeah. But um, is there a sort of a something that you would do um, after a meal to try to let things digest at all? Definitely um, doing eating your meal with no distractions. If you can eat away from computers, away from work, really sitting down and having that time and dedicating it. It's amazing how much you you notice within the meal, how the taste becomes so much more intense and your body is really recognising that you're eating. Um, when you eat, you should only have the size of two handfuls. So often the sleepiness comes from overeating, overburdening that digestive fire. Um, also, one of the best things you can do to support your digestion is actually before you eat. So if you have some raw ginger, you might have a squeeze of lime, some black pepper on there, that's going to really stimulate your digestive fire so that when you do eat, it's burning and it's ready to start digesting, not overeating, and then doing it in a peaceful environment and just taking it easy, just having like a half an hour window where you really just allow your body to be fully present and aware of what it's doing. Mm. Um, within, within Ayurveda, there's the 12 guidelines the 12 golden guidelines of eating and they go into a lot more detail about that and how you can sort of set yourself up to support your digestive system around your food and that is all about cooking having that experience with the preparation of the food eating without any distractions and really focusing on what you're eating never talking about anything stressful or anything related to disease or illness while you're eating and cooking is also really important because you're imparting that sort of negative energy into your food and you almost go into a state of fight or flight when you're thinking about something stressful. So then when you're in that state of fight or flight, your your digestive system is completely switched off. You're in survival mode. So you put all this food in your stomach and your body doesn't know what to do with it. So you might get sleepy, you might get tired, and that food can then be transformed into toxins. Even if it's the healthiest food, if you're not digesting it, it begins to rot in your bottom, in your in your body, and then it's just, you know, it can wreak havoc on your system. Yeah, I so definitely, yeah. Oh, sorry, I, I just thinking about the different states of consciousness that we're in when we're eating. Sometimes we've all had that meal where, you know, we're zoned out, we're watching something on TV, yeah, being, um, you know, conscious and aware when we sit down to actually have food. Um, that's, yeah, totally um, different approach that I'm sure many people will find refreshing to hear. Yeah, it's amazing how much we just never slow down. We're constantly 
mm. on the go. You know, I work in an office during the week and I watch everyone. They've got a plate of food in front of them. They're sending emails. They're still working. They're having a bite. They're putting it down. They're having a conversation. They're stressed about a meeting and it's like they, their body has no idea that they're actually eating food and has no chance to actually digest it. So there's this another saying in Ayurveda um, that's like you can you can have the most immaculate diet you can eat purely raw um, not raw that's not Ayurvedic but you know organic plant-based homegrown in your own garden meal but if your digestive system is not strong your digestive fire isn't strong and your mental well-being isn't strong you just simply can't digest it properly and therefore that's when it becomes a problem so it's the mental the mental awareness is so crucial it's interesting that the more I listen to the the practices of Ayurveda, it almost sounds to some degree like it's a it's a collection of 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 other practices put together, or or like a dossier of of, of uh, a healthy lifestyle, if that makes sense, which encompasses, you know, as you said, meditation or massage, which all have their own kind of areas of research, for example, um, individually. I'm I'm just curious how how adaptive is Ayurveda considering you know we live in quite a different age now to when it when it uh, the inception of Ayurveda or how, how long it's been around so when you're thinking about practices or even Western medicine to a certain degree a lot of the medicines that we're having these days you know when we get say somebody has cancer or something like that those weren't available three thousand years ago or or whatever so. You know, or even a digital lifestyle where we're on our computers and phones present or getting dopamine hits from Instagram and the rest of that kind of thing. Um, I'm assuming that Ayurveda has a position on those types of things. And I, I'm just curious how, how adaptive yeah, it, it is through, throughout the, uh, the It's interesting centuries. because when you actually look at the fundamentals of Ayurveda, nothing's changed. So, yeah, it was a different time then, but Ayurveda is all about working within your own natural environment. So the seasons change and our diet should complement that. We should be eating foods that are growing locally. And one of the problems we have in the Western world is, you know, it can be the middle of winter and we're still eating watermelon that's been flown in from the tropics. And, you know, it's not supportive of our own natural environment. So that's one of the key ingredients to kind of making it modernizing it understanding it in a modern context um obviously being as closely connected to nature because you know it's not just a spiritual thing it's like we we are of nature we are planet we are creatures of planet earth we are made of these five elements that make up all of the plants and all of the other species so it makes it makes sense that by consuming natural products and foods we're supporting the regeneration of our own cells and we're supporting, you know, the detoxification of our own body ailments and our natural waste processes and things like that. Um, so, you know, the further we move away from nature, the more we start to see these ailments come up. So it's always just about removing as many of them as we can or making sure that we have balance in our day-to-day. -day. So you know, using organic skincare products is super important from deodorant to all of your oral care, um, face creams, everything like that, shampoos and conditioners, they should be as natural as possible. 
um, foods as well, as I was saying, should be local, should be organic as much as possible. You know, as soon as you start consuming toxins, you're, you're really creating a breeding ground. And, you know, the problem is that these diseases can take so long to manifest physically. And Ayurveda is all about becoming your own healer and noticing day to day the effects that your food has on you, drinks have on you, certain products have on you. And we've become so out of touch with our own body and that language that we have with ourselves that we don't even recognize when there's a problem. So, you know, something might take five, even 10 years to come up. And by that stage, they can't say, oh, that was a deodorant you were using when you were 18 that was full of aluminium that's been accumulating in your lymphatic system and that has now become an issue. Like we just don't have the ability to be able to trace it right back to that moment. So as much as you can avoid those things and you're going to have a much better chance at being healthy and having longevity. What I ask about, um, sorry, I'm just interested in meditation. Look at Mitch and I, we're both just <laughs> curious. Well, mine, mine's, mine, mine leads on a little bit more right, from that. Just right, right. So I'm going to interrupt you. <laughs> just put in, but, but priority. Yeah, absolutely. It, so isn't, isn't, um, isn't natural or natural food somewhat subjective depending on the person? So different per- people have different tolerances, for example. And then also regionally people have different diets depending on where they're from. You know, some might have a very uh, wheat-heavy diet versus like rice. Versus yeah, and that kind of thing. So how, how, how does... Like, what does Ayurveda say about those types of um, discrepancies between different regions and different, or for example, for, for myself, I know that I'm not great with lactose, but, you know, it might be, you know, easily absorbed by somebody else or, or fructose even, which arguably is one of the most natural things you can you know, think of fruit, right? But um, not, not amazing for me, apparently. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because generally, and, and Ayurveda doesn't, you know, prescribed solely to Indian cooking, you can apply the fundamentals of the Ayurvedic diet and the six tastes to basically any cuisine. And we do also factor in your genetic constitution. So where you've grown up, you know, you have that DNA, you're wired to generally. So you're going to be more accustomed to the foods that your predecessors ate, what your parents ate, your grandparents ate you'll naturally be more inclined to consume those foods because that's what's within your DNA cellular structure. But then you look at the individual and, you know, it comes back to your dosha, your energetic constitution, and working with the foods that complement your dosha. So if you're that that pitta type, that fiery type, having spicy foods, chili, stimulants, caffeine, they're all going to increase that fire. So the doshas are really there as tools to create balance. So rather than, you know, increasing that like, like attracts like, rather than doing that, you always want to balance it out. So the pitta types will have more cooling foods, which are like more of the bitter greens, um, more of the sort of cooling herbs like mint and fennel and chamomile and things that are going to eliminate some of that heat from the body. So to kind of craft your own, perfect personalized diet you'd really need to understand what dosha you are and also which doshas are at play and that can come down to 
you know, hourly. You know, if I'm at work and I've had a really intense meeting, I know that my pitta is being elevated because we all have all three doshas. I'm naturally not quite pitta. I'm more of the kapha, which is more of the earth element. But in a meeting or a stressful environment or something's going on, pitta's, you know, pitta's raging. You know, you might find yourself flushed and red in the face, sweating. They're all sort of signs of pitta. So at that time, I'm not going to go and have a spicy hot soup or, you know, something with loads of chili in it or have more coffee, like more stimulating foods. I'm going to stay away from that and then go for a more cooling meal. And that doesn't mean cold as in actually like raw or salad, but more of those ingredients that have the cooling energetics. Interesting. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to understand what... (laughs) you know so many times we, we speak to a lot of doctors on on our program and you know many of them are actually integrative and subscribe to a lot of um these types of practices to be honest but i'm just wondering for, for people out there that are thinking about you know ayurveda or alternative so to speak lifestyle methods and they go to their doctor and the doctor says you know that's that's there's no science behind that there's no you know there's no proof um what do you, what's your message to those types of patients or people looking for another way other than, you know, they're taking benzos, they're taking, um, you know, painkillers that are just not making them feel great. There's a lot of side effects. That's, I mean, that's where we, we end up with um, in the medicinal cannabis space a lot, uh, a lot of people um, coming to the space because it's kind, kind of, toes the line between alternative and Western in to, to some degree, but, but um, yeah, what's your message for people that are out there searching for something and have received that kind of feedback from their doctor? I think you've just got to try it for yourself and see, you know, there's no harm in having healthy organic plant-based meals. It's not going to affect your medicine. It's not going to affect anything negatively. Try it, see how you go, you know, once you develop these daily rituals and these daily practices and kind of get into the groove of cooking and taking care of yourself, you'll start to sleep better. So in doing that, you're going to have more energy throughout the day and then you have more energy and momentum for exercise. And all of these things sort of start to trickle into your life. And, you know, if you really want to find the science, it is there. There's so much research that's being done on the positive effects of meditation, mindfulness, plant-based diet, natural medicine, all of it. So it's there if you want to, if you want to go and find it. Um, but, you know, why not just try it? And you don't need to come off your medication straight away. You can sort of complement it through Ayurvedic practices. You can start to wean yourself off. You can start to um, sort of implement different herbs and different spices and different food groups into your diet that will kind of complement the Um, the smaller doses and just see how you go and see how you feel and I have never met a person to this day who hasn't felt some kind of you know amazing effect and has found that that is the path for them and once they're on it they never look back absolutely I think that's um, really great advice because we're talking low risk here like it's yeah and then people who are stuck on the treadmill of really uh, you know conjecture around is the bad lifestyle of their creation or are they you know just the subject of it but it's it's you know so many times you see people you know going through hell with with you know a medical condition and 
Yeah, I, I certainly, um, I think medical cannabis has been a revelation for, for many people. Um, I imagine psychedelic medicines will be in, in years to come as, as we begin to turn our minds to that quite literally. Um, but I just wanted to ask you on, while we're on the topic of mind medicine, um, what, what meditation you do, um, how does it fit within your, your lifestyle um, is it something you can do at work when you have those really busy meetings where you're just thinking, I need to just, you know, take a breath and, and just chill out? How, how, how does it look in, in your life? So for me, I like to practice my meditation in the morning. Um, so the best time of day to do it is when you just wake up, you're sort of half in that sleep state. So your mind is more docile. You haven't had your entire day's experiences and all those impressions running through your mind. So it's the easiest way, if you like, to access that meditative state. So sort of waking up first thing in the morning straight into meditation. And, you know, I might only sit for five minutes. Um, I don't put any pressure on myself. I don't want it to be a regimented thing where I have to sit and I have to do 30 minutes. Um, I don't like to have those rules. I don't work well with rules and boundaries, so I... I just sit and I go, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like. And sometimes half an hour can pass and I haven't even noticed it. Or sometimes, you know, if I'm not feeling it or I'm not in the mood and I've just got <clears throat> too much going on in my mind, I'll just move on and do some yoga, do some abhyanga, which is a self-oil massage. Um, you know, these things are all forms of meditation as well. So there's not really any rules. It's just what works for you and, and what, you know, will support you doing it rather than thinking, I have to do it for 30 minutes or an hour twice a day. You know, it's not fun. Just well, make it, it enjoyable. Yeah. But, and when you sit down, I mean, I'm just, I'm so not a morning person. So I, I just, I would wake up and it takes me like an hour just to figure out what my name is, where I am in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. So, but is it kind of, is the idea that, you know, you're, you're, you're coming out of a dream state potentially and, and you just want to um, refine or, or sharpen your focus by, you know, paying attention to being aware of, of you know, of where you are, what's going on. Is, is that the, the goal? I've never actually, you know, full confession, I've never actually sat down to try to meditate before um, and it's something I've, I've definitely would like to do but I, I don't even know sort of where to begin so the main goal it's kind of the opposite of what you said you know you you mentioned sharpening your focus but the main goal of Ayurveda is to switch off all of your senses so mm. switching off your your vision your sense of smell your sense of hearing um your sense of touch all of it switch it all off and the reason we do this is so that our body can do its own healing so when our mind and all of these distractions are switched off, you know, our bodies are incredible and the things and the processes they do all day, every day are amazing. But when our head and our thoughts are constantly in a million different directions, it's really hard for that process to take place, for that cell regeneration, for that filtering out of toxins. So when, when we switch off our mind consciously, great healing, deep healing happens. So it's really just about sort of it's the cleansing of our mind so that it can support our body to cleanse itself and so that we can exercise those sorts of 
so those sorts of lessons, if we can learn to switch our mind off when we're faced with emotion, grief, fear, stress, we know that we have the power to preserve ourselves and to disassociate ourselves from those extreme emotions so that we can process them and so that we can react and respond to our environment and to the things that we're faced with in life in a really healthy way. So it's arming us with those tools to preserve ourselves, basically. It's so cool. It's kind of like a, almost opening up or unlocking a part of a continuum of consciousness where, you know, everyone would know what the feeling is like to be so intensely focused on doing something, you know, and, and maybe just applying all your mental rigor to getting something done. But to go to the complete opposite end of the scale and to have that almost in your back pocket or in your, in your toolkit to be able to go there as and when situations arise, like you said, that you really do need to be able to just step back, switch off, process. Um, yeah, that's that's great. Um, maybe, Mitch, you and I should, uh, should get on the meditation train at some point. Um, I've done a bit. You've done, I've done right. a bit. Yeah. I've yeah. definitely seen you switched off, but I'm not sure you were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was meditating at that time at, uh, at the bar. No. <laughs> Um, I'll just give you one little tip to sort of begin your um, practice of meditation. And it's one we often use in Ayurveda and it's called Tratika and it's candle gazing. So it's, mm. it's quite hard for someone who's never switched off their mind to do that. You could sit there for hours. You know, people go, oh, I meditate for two hours a day. I've been doing it for 40 years. But they're actually not. They're just sitting on the floor with their eyes closed and their mind is still running at a million miles an hour and they're still having all the thoughts and doing all the things and it's it's not actually the benefits of meditation aren't really taking place so if you can just decrease the amount of thoughts then you're on the right path so when you have when you do tratika you have a small flame in front of you and you stare at that flame you have a purpose you have a mission so you're staring at the candle and then when your eyes start to kind of get dry and glaze over, you can close your eyes. And whilst your eyes are closed, you continue to visualise the, the flame in your third eye. And when that flame goes away and you, you find thoughts coming back through, then you open your eyes again and you find the flame again. And you hold it until you can't keep your eyes open anymore. And you just keep going through that process. So when you're opening your eyes, you know, when the, when, the, when the flame goes away from the third eye, you know those thoughts have come in, they're permeating you again. So you go back to your focus mm. and then you hold that, go back to your third eye and then as soon as it comes through and it, it almost creates an incentive not to have those thoughts because you want to stay in that meditative state and you know every time they come in, you've got to open your eyes, you've got to feel the kind of the flame and it does get uncomfortable staring at a flame. So you want to keep them closed, but you know that to keep them closed, you have to have no thoughts. So it's like a little bit of a practice with yourself. So you've got a little bit of purpose and a little bit of incentive to keep the thoughts away. So that's just one of many, many beautiful um, kind of activity yogas and um, meditations that you can do. Sounds similar to one I think I used to do, which is um, all third eye based, but basically... um, imagining a candle flame and then the breath in and the breath out blowing the flame away okay. and then sucking the flame towards you kind of thing and just literally trying to focus on just yeah. that 
Um, and I found that incredibly meditative. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's much easier than just trying to sit there and just say, okay, I'm not going to think anymore. Yeah. You know, we're, our, we have so many thousands and thousands of thoughts every day. Um, mm. Yeah, it's really quite impossible just to jump in and, and think that you can switch that off. Yeah. So, so if people listening to the, the podcast and the show are interested in learning a little bit more, where might they be able to find some more information? I know where this over? is going, Rich. You're going <laughs> to don't Very you slow down the lockdown Very project. <laughs> yeah, don't, 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 give away my, don't give away my segues. <laughs> um, so what, what the guys are hinting at there is um, a book that I have recently published. It's called Ayurvedic Rituals. And it's full of... Give us, give us a little flash of the... Well, for anyone who's not watching this might not understand what you were talking <laughs> we are, about there. We are, yeah, we're um, currently yeah. looking at the cover of the book. The flash um, of the cover of the book, yes, um, that's, which yes. I'm holding up now. Um, and, yeah, it's a lot more about this wisdom, the fundamentals, how to live within your own environment, how to understand your body, how to become your own healer, how to cook for your body type, um, different sort of diet and lifestyle practices, loads of recipes, how to make your own toothpaste and body oils and face creams and there's a rose water-based mouthwash, mouthwash, which is one of my favourites in there, um, lots of different facials and um, heaps of beautiful food recipes and milk-based elixirs and teas. There's also um, a plant-based apothecary at the back. So, you know, if you cut yourself um, and you're bleeding in the kitchen, chucking turmeric powder on there coagulates the blood and it's also antibacterial. So there's mm. heaps of pages in there, headaches, anxiety, nosebleeds, all sorts of different things that you will have in your kitchen hangover cures um all those sorts of things i was um, thinking it was more like naturopathy but that's actually slightly different in a, in a well sort of it's more yeah as you say like practical kitchen remedies yeah totally i mean these most of the most of the things that are on these pages are different herbs and spices um honey infused with different spices all sorts of, you know, things that you literally will just have in your kitchen. And I, I will say that the biggest difference between Ayurveda and naturopathy is that although naturopathy is plant-based and natural, it's often formulated in a way that sort of takes it away from its or original organic form. So, you know, Ayurveda will actually use the plant in its original form. It will be ground. It might just be the straight seeds. It might be the fresh plant. Whereas naturopathy, they take the active ingredients out of the plant and formulate them with other plants. And once you do that, you're actually, it's not the original plant anymore. It's the combination of those things. And it's often not looked at, um, you know, the polarizing properties of these plants and how they actually communicate together and what the effect in your body when you have them. Like most diabetic herbs, if, if you're sick and you've been, prescribed a number of different remedies they'll be taken at different times throughout the day it's it's not like you, you know as soon as you throw it all in there it's all got to be digested and everything's digested in a different way so it's really important to have them in their whole forms and a really good example of this is you know the turmeric phase and you know we all went nuts on how great turmeric is for you which is totally true but if you use turmeric in your cooking and you're having a little bit of it every day staggered throughout the day fantastic 
if you take the active ingredient from turmeric and you put it in a pill, which, you know, has 50 milligrams of that active ingredient and it doesn't have the other 49 ingredients that are part of the turmeric gland, you're taking essentially the equivalent of eating a pound of turmeric in one of those capsules. And if you tried to sit there and eat a pound of turmeric, you would be violently ill. Your body would completely reject it because mm -hmm. you've missed out on all of the other active ingredients you need to digest it. And it's also, it's, it's too much of a good thing. It's like the dose makes the medicine or the poison. And if you're ODing on certain ingredients, then it can actually have a very detrimental effect. So Ayurveda is all about infusing it small doses throughout the day, throughout your week, and just, you know, bit by bit. It's kind of like adding salt along the way rather than just dumping it on at the end <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. Gotcha. Totally. Gotcha. Okay. Now that's Beautiful. great. Um, Mitch, any more questions for Chaska or... Well, our usual question doesn't really apply here, which is when when will cannabis be legalized? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just, actually, I mean, feel free to offer a view. I was going to just um, finish by asking about whether there's any trips to India on the horizon, perhaps. I would have been there last year. I would have, I was planning to go and spend at least six or 12 months there, um, pretty much at the time when lockdown hit. So, mm. Um, I will be going there as soon as I can. And I think I'll be getting a one-way ticket and really just immersing myself in it for as long as possible and potentially a second book and potentially a documentary film. And oh, yeah. cool. That's um, great. Where, where um, out of interest, where would you be going to? What's kind of, is there a, a particular part of India where Ayurveda reigns supreme or is... It's, it's mostly, I mean, it is all over, but largely in the South. And a lot of the Ayurvedic healing centers and detoxification centers, cleansing centers are all um, largely in the South. And I think it's, you know, I've spent most of my time in India in the North, um, which is beautiful and very spiritual. And, um, you know, it is, it is quite a different world up there. I think the South is a bit more laid back and you've got, you know, the ocean. And I am definitely being called to nature after having been in Melbourne lockdown for a while. So <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty keen to get in the water and to, yeah, visit some of the places in the South and potentially do some um, live-in um, practitioner work and maybe in a birthing centre or something like that. Cool. Yeah. Well, we, we were in, um, we were up in Rajasthan and yeah, it was uh it's a whirlwind trip. I, I was unfortunately quite ill right at the end. So I guess I probably didn't live up to the Ayurveda principles during my brief time in India, but no, <laughs> I would, uh, yeah, that sounds like a great, a great trip. So um, yeah, we'll definitely keep in touch and who knows, maybe the next time we see if we don't catch you in Melbourne before you're, uh, you're over there, we might have to do a, a follow-up to this episode when you're based in, in the South of India. That would be amazing. Great. Well, no, thanks so much, Chaska. Appreciate you coming on the podcast. And we really hope, I, I think that was just um, really good to sort of dip the toe in the water for our audience who are you know, very open-minded to, to alternative medicine. So really thanks so much for your time and congratulations on the book. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Chaska. It was great yes. to, to speak with you. Cheers.